Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Jay. This is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of going out and getting a bunch of your friends and living together in the woods for the rest of your life and liking it. This week, we're talking about colonies, creating colonies, especially in the fringe-worthy game, but in any game that you might like where you go out and not necessarily create a colony in a wilderness, but definitely away from your home world, your home culture, or anything else like that. Fringe-worthy, a unique trait shared by so few, a gift or a curse, to those that can transit a portal accessing the extra-dimensional network, a pathway to a million million portals to a million million other worlds. Worlds filled with terrible wonder or shocking beauty, populated by denizens other than human and motivated by their own values. A creation of a race so advanced that the physical laws of the universe became not barriers to their own creative drives. Will you shoulder this burden and step onto the paths for your world? Adventure in the million, million worlds of Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy is a role-playing game by Tritech Games. Available at TritechGames.com. Come explore the worlds of Tritech Games. Explore the worlds of Fringeworthy. Trev asked an interesting question in the uh, chat here. If your lifespan is, is stretched out by 20 times, how long is your fertility zone stretched out for? Same thing. Probably more. Oh, yeah. Having babies at 170. I was just going to say that. Oh, yeah. Reminds me of a joke. The punchline is, you stick that thing in me again, I'm going to break it off. <laughs> no, I, I thought women had a limited amount of time they actually could produce ova. We just, we just had a discussion about a flying world ship a billion miles long. Wave your hands a little, John. Let's wave our hands. Let's see. Men can produce sperm until I think they're 70s or 80s. So, I mean, if we want to multiply that by 20... You know, a 2,000-year lifespan, okay, do the math still. That's a long time to be, you know, for a man to produce sperm or a woman to produce ovum and be able to carry the term. That's right, baby. 1,400-year-old sperm. Blix brought up something about colony, I think. That would put an incredible stress on resources if you're popping out kids. You would need to have one heck of a good population control in order to keep that from going if you've got a fringe a colony full of fringe-worthy. Yeah. And you're assuming uh, natural procreation. When they get old enough, push them back through the portal. Thanks for staying with us. Now get off. Yeah, I'm just saying, if you have somebody who is less than scrupulous and they're pulling an Octomom program to make more fringe-worthy or to make a much larger population overnight, then eventually they're going to get stabbed by a very angry woman. Well, yeah, and also, if you're sitting there and... Uh, 
I believe the term would be going native, where you're intermarrying and interbreeding into the native culture. After a while, the women are just going to be going, oh, dear God, no more, please. Technical term is miscination, I believe it was. (laughs) But again, we're also talking about a highly advanced medical culture where women may not be engaging in terrible suffering as a result of having birth. To them, it might be something that they do for a short period of time, pass it off to a, a artificial incubator, artificial womb, and it's it's really more of a uh, you know a, a monthly a commitment every year or so. Well, also a lot of primitive cultures. I mean, you know how well those of us who have either well have been present at births. I mean, I was present at the birth of my daughter. They're the first wife, and I was through the whole thing. Bruce, he has a son, Blix has a daughter. We see how the wives are. Laid back, legs up in the stirrups, okay. Most primitive cultures also have birth where they're hunched over, and we in the Western world are just now starting to take a lot of these older customs into practice. They would do things that way in these cultures. If you were to start interbreeding the cultures, to make birthing easier when they have to do it. What's the game effects of that? I'm not writing that supplement. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, Well, I just think that if we're talking about the late campaign, I think that childbirth will be a lot safer and easier as long as they still have access to these medical facilities. Oh, a Tremellor dock box would do wonders to help a pregnancy be as smooth as possible. Oh, man. Oh, cesarean? No, we just reach inside the body and take the baby out. Yeah, just phase it through. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. You know what would create the first colony? It would be the Demixie. Because basically their world's going to hell in a handbasket, and they still haven't figured out how to uh, to take the handles off the basket yet. Oh, that's right, yeah. That's a survivor colony. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the Demixie, because they produce their young in an egg sac, they're producing hundreds uh, of offspring for each one. Okay. I'm going to go over here in a corner and carefully not be racist about the Demixie for a while. Okay. Are they like other spiders that when when the eggs hatch, they're sort of a death match and they eat each other until there's only a few survivors left that go on to be adults? Well, survival of the fittest. That, that's just nature at its most, you know, rampant. That's but that's all most species of earth spiders are. They have hundreds of babies. They're intelligent, so therefore they're going to look and see this as, a, as an opportunity. If they, this was part of their culture, we've never said it was. Because we said that their culture is very much like ours and we don't eat our young. Even if that was part of their culture, when they go to do a colony, they're going to forestall that at least for a while so they can get a very large... You don't eat your young? Not normally, no. I only had the one oh. child. You know, He's really expensive per pound. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you'd kind of save him for a, a special occasion. Yeah, when, when yeah like my old age, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but the, the point is, is that I think that they would av- avoid doing that because of the obvious advantage of increasing their numbers radically, you know, if not exponentially, as a result of keeping this young alive. I could just see them planning a colony, staying long enough to make sure the kids are doing okay and they're, and they're not being eaten by the wildlife and say, we'll be back in a year. We're going to get some more stuff for you. Bye. You know, and, and, and basically building, you know, at least having a couple of adults around watching the kids and build a colony. Pretty soon there'll be 10,000 Demixie 
in almost no time. <laughs> but, they could easily uh, outbreed us as far as setting up colonies, it, you know, assuming, of course, that they weren't hunted down and exterminated by the human natives if there were such. Hey, there are empty worlds out there they can set, set up shop in. Yeah. Assuming that a legion of fringe-worthy arachnophobes didn't just chase them all down. That also assumes there's a food source proper for the Demixi, because what a six-foot-long spider is going to probably consume a 30- or 40-pound creature a day. Hey, they can bring bugs with them. No, no, no. I mean, their bodies don't metabolize more food than ours do. If anything, they're probably more efficient metabolizers because of the way they digest. So I, I don't see that as a, as a problem. I mean, you know, incompatibilities in the food might be a problem. But otherwise, yeah, I'm sure they would bring in their own – they would introduce their own species of food bugs in addition to the other stuff that's out there. Oh, and then you run into the Australia problem. You got to be careful what you bring what you bring into another world with you. You never know where it's going to wind up. Oh yeah, that's but you know that's going to happen. And that means that every sea world is a is an ecological disaster. Yeah, yeah. It's not because of that. I think it's because of their particular their attitude toward trade and progress is a little bit more darwinistic than the rest of us is. Yeah. It was kind of more Gordon Gecko. I mean, they are coming from a world that's that's basically collapsing, and these guys they really don't care. They they want to survive. They want their people to survive. They want their cultures to survive. And there's a million million worlds out there. So what are we complaining about? Let's just go grab a new world, guys. And if there's an empty world on their own on their own platform, hey, guess what? It's gonna be full Demixie. I imagine so. Yeah. As soon as they find a female Demixie. Yeah. Yikes. Yikes. Now, Demixia, however, don't benefit from the uh, the passage through the French border with, with babies because they, cause they do carry – I think we decided the egg sacs don't count. Right. However, once they get there, they can produce that egg sac, no trouble. Yeah. And it, it, what is it? The Demixia are worse than us. They're like 1 in 500,000? Right. What's the maturation rate? You guys were toying with that idea. We've never said that, I don't believe. I don't think that's actually in any of the documentation. Mm. But it doesn't matter. I mean, if they were 500 less, you know, their, their ability to reproduce is so great compared to us that they could easily out-compete us as far as you know, reproduction on any world that we, that we would colonize with them or without them. Yeah, they would need at least four mating pairs. Uh, so they would need two, two worker, you know, two constructors and two hunters. To go on Star County, and with I say within a couple, about ten years, they'll have a nice colony going there. <laughs> and they wouldn't even need those mating pairs because there's nothing to say that um, Demixi uh, re- male reproductive uh, material can't be frozen. Don't some spiders carry sperm with them, and then they just the female fertilizes herself whenever it's convenient. Yum, yummy, yum, yum. <laughs> yeah, there's some that. You know, they kill the male once, and they carry the sperm, and each time they come into cycle, they just reproduce. Guys, guys, you know, you do realize this is a clean podcast, and though I personally am not offended by these topics, some of our listeners might have a little, be a little more squeamish along these lines. That's why I was using euphemisms as male reproductive material. Let's roll on to the next part. All right, so you're living on a world. You create a colony. It has a good relationship, so to speak. Suddenly? Demixie everywhere. Assuming it's not Demixie, assuming that it's more of the human or whatever in, in a world in which it has another culture there. What is the attitude as far as 
laws? Are you going to create a kind of an isolistic, isolationistic thing where we have our laws and you have yours? Do not judge us according to your laws and we will not judge you according to ours. Or are you going to have going to try to create some kind of a group legal system? Colonization charters. I think we're going to fall back on Jay's statement that he's made more in a couple times now, which holds water. It depends on what the colony was originally made for. Now, if you are basically going out and it's like, we want to be like the com or the, like I did. It's an Earth Prime colony. Well, you're going to fashion yourself after the best of Earth Prime. The rules that you know work, the rules that you know have stood the test of time, and you're going to adapt according to your environment. It's like, okay, well, instead of punishment, let's say we colonize a frozen planet because let's say there's a resource there that we, well, gee, the biggest resource on the ice planet would be water. Let's say it's a mining colony and there's like pockets of oil down below. Fine. Your law, it's like, well, we're not going to make a penal colony. We're not going to make, you know, an area where you're going to be, you know, stuck in prison. You screw up. Hey, look, there's the airlock. Get walking. You're going to adapt the laws to to the environment. But it'd be written into your colony charter. Well, yeah, you're still going to make a charter so everybody has access to the laws and there's no such thing as ignorance. Everybody knows the rules before they get in, in the middle of it. So ignorance of the rules is no excuse. Yes. What is the ethical way to deal with that? What is the right way to go? If you're, if, if you're sitting there on, the, on, on a planet side of a portal and you're setting up a new colony and you find there are, there are people there who may not have reached your level of technological development, what is the ethical way to interact with them? What is the right thing to do there? They have home court advantage. They probably outnumber you. I would say don't cheese them off. That's a utilitarian argument. What's the right thing to do? Let's say your version of Wesley Crusher happens to step on their piece of holy grass, and that's got the sense of death on it. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to let them kill off Wesley Crusher? And, and I know that there's a, there's a great temptation to say yes. Well, yeah, we're, we're going to get a lot of mail on that one, Bruce. Let's, I can see that already. Let's say this is a cute little... Blonde or brunette girl in pigtails. Cindy Lou Who, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Death to Cindy Lou Who. They're like, it is the law. It is the law that's been passed down from generation to generation. Little Cindy Who must die. You're creating a hypothetical example there. But, you know, generally, what is what is the right thing to do? I mean, suppose they say that one of your guys went out and killed one of their guys. and they want to take one of your guys away and try him for it according to the methods of their culture what's the right way to behave there well i know my group would probably stay and then and face the music but some teams would go well yes we, can we have a stay a stay of the, of the trial we need to check out some things and then run as fast as they can for the portal and disappear your solution is to flee i would say and face the music uh, but i'm saying some people would pack up and head for the portal and get the hell out of there okay paul what do you think I'd say you're going to start either with a policy of inclusion or a policy of exclusion. You're yeah. going to mingle 100% or 50%, or you're not going to mingle at all. You're going to build a fence and keep them out. That still doesn't address how you, how you deal with the two different systems for dealing with conflict like that. Paul, you're a military, you're a military policeman. If you were in another country, what was the, uh, the SOFA, yes? The statute, uh, statute of Forces Agreement. 
that's the agreement between your country and your government and their government how to handle that stuff. So basically, we, we, we'd have a sofa. So you'd make an agreement with the local tribe. Here's how the rules are going to work between our two cultures. Some cases, the sofa is mutually mm-hmm. beneficial, like yeah. the sofa between the U.S. and U.K. In other places, we've just simply dictated to them what the sofa is going to be. Yeah. In the case of the occupation of Germany, the occupation of Japan after World War II. Some of these colonies, you're going to be the higher tech people. And these low-tech people are not a budge on that. They're going to be like, no, our law, our rules, you're the visitors, you screwed up, hand them over to us, and we're going to make life really interesting in a Chinese way. I, I, I keep hearing you go back to this utilitarian argument of who has the most force available to them. I'm, I'm talking about what is the actual right way to behave, regardless of who has how much force. It would probably depend on the situation. I mean, if it is a matter of murder, like, you know, even, you know, one of our one of your, you know, visitors killed one of our tribesmen, most likely that tribes, you know, the the tribe will probably have a very big if you want to deal with these people in any type of long-term agreement, you're probably going to want to listen to their side of the argument, or if not, it's going to be John's thing. It's like, okay, you know what? Then we got to get the heck out of here. It's going to be, you know, John's. You're going back to a consequential argument. You treat them right, so you can be, so you can trade with them, or you run away, so they can't enact some sort of uh, consequence on you. But you're not talking about what the root level right or wrong thing is, sir. Oh God, um, that even assumes that they have a, a legal structure to understand. That sort of thing. And well, let's let's assume they do. Well, yeah, you have to have some codified form of law in order to exist as some type of civilization. Even a village of like fifty people, they still have to have some standard of morals and ethics in order to abide. If somebody kills somebody, you know, if if tribesman A kills tribesman B because you know he coveted one's wife. They still have to have a rule on, okay, how are we going to adjudicate this that this guy killed this other guy because he was looking at his wife? There's still going to be some rules that this tribe is going to go by. I mean, no matter how primitive or advanced a civilization is, that's, I mean, that's just how the society would run. You would need it. I mean, that's just how we are as humans. I mean, if only a pecking order. Yeah, it could be you know, depending on your, on the on how they deal with this sort of thing. It may basically accusation comes from one side, accusation you know, defense comes from the other side. The chief looks around, decides who you got to live with, and there's lots of ways to resolve disputes. I suppose the question I'm asking here is, when you get to another world, are you going to say I've got the big gun, so it goes my way, or or are you going to say let's play this fair, and which is the right thing to do, and why? I'm sure that they're going to try to be as equal as possible and try to respect the other people. But when the pedal hits the metal, when your family or yourself or other things are on the line, I just can't imagine any colony not simply saying, look, we're willing to pay whatever reasonable price there is to make this right. But ultimately, it's going to go our way because, you know, we believe that, you know, we understand what's real justice, and your ways, if they differ enough from us, are just not are not going to be ones we're going to support. 
I can't imagine it really going any other way. It's an interesting way to get a uh, perspective on people's view of human nature. But uh, a GM kind of has to thread a path here of telling a story and not inviting a conflict between those two views to get out of hand. It could be that the locals, their, their version of, of retribution is, well, blood, is a blood payment. So, yeah, now you have to hand over a bunch of those um, uh, assault rifles you brought along with you. They'll have you balance out the debt right there. You know, and, of course, enough ammunition for them, you know, as well. You know, it could be a situation where, okay, we can sell this amicably by giving them weapons. Yeah, see, that's... <laughs> oh, sure, I'll give you an assault rifle and 100 rounds of ammunition for Villager A's life. Right. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that assault rifle apart. I'm going to go to the firing pin, and, and I'm going to cut it three-quarters of the way through. And then I'll give it to him. It might last 100 rounds. Yeah, or you could say, okay, you know, you killed you know, somebody in our family, therefore, therefore you have to make it right. So therefore, your daughter has to marry... My younger son. Oh. I think we're, we're talking about the evolution of what is, you know, ethics in, in philosophy here. I don't see an advanced IDET team agreeing to another culture's eye for an eye level of justice. Yeah. Even if, uh, even, even if one of the team members just walked up and blew away, blew away a native because, screw him, he's a, per- he's a primitive, whatever. They don't have, they don't have toilet paper. Screw him. I've been on teams where if someone did that, there'd be a second shot from one of the team members, and it wouldn't be at the at the natives. Yeah, the evolved sense of ethics of the yeah, rest of the team is probably going to kill the psychopath. Yeah, I, don't no, think- I would think it. I would think at that case, this guy who shot the native, I doubt this would have spouted up immediately. This guy would have been acting like a jerkwad for some time, and this would have been just the capper. It's like. You know what? We fine. We have to explain why we're missing one thing of one bullet out of our ammo clip back to the quartermaster at Atsumi, and we'll just tell him. Gun went off. I was cleaning it, and they would look at the body and go center mass. But, but I don't think you're get, you're getting the the example I made, which is that someone has died. That person has to be replaced. So you offer up somebody from your side to marry into my family. We produce a child. That replaces the person who's died. It also acts as a bridge between our two groups. It's not necessarily a bad solution to that kind of uh, conflict. It's not necessarily an eye for an eye either. But it's a person for a person. could be uncomfortable for somebody somebody who sees... uh, members of their family in a, in a really, uh, how should I say, possessive sort of a way. Right, but it's also not going to be so great for the person who's going to be executed for killing the person under who knows what circumstances. That's true. That's true. We have a historical analog for this. Roman hostage-taking. They always exchanged uh, children between kingdoms. Mm-hmm. It's also done amongst Indian tribes. Yeah. Correct. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, that was that was done everywhere. England did that. Uh, France did that. That that was done all throughout early days. Sort of describes my relationship with my wife. <laughs> what? She's taking you hostage. Yeah. Does she have like one of your cats or something? Or oh, oh, you're t- okay. I got you. Oh, never mind. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a it's an old joke, and it's way off topic for here. <laughs> Again, I I just don't see an IDET team coming from an advanced twentieth twenty first century legal system um, 
doing more than a sort of a genuflection at a legal system that's based on an eye for an eye or something as primitive as the Code of Hammurabi. Does what their teammate actually did play into it, or is it just, we don't care if you kill them because your law system is primitive? Well, let's say you break a religious law. You know, it, it doesn't apply to you, but it's very, very oh, serious to them. Yeah, you wouldn't consider that a crime because you don't see the uh, you don't see the harm. What I'm setting up here is something where the perception of harm is pretty universal. Where somebody got killed, see, and now uh, so what your example there immediately took any harm out of it, except for the natives' perception of harm, so, right? And so me, I'm saying if the natives perceive a harm, you defiled the tree god Erp. How dare you? Then that justifies you know saying, okay, guys, well, we'll talk to you later and running through the portal. But actually killing somebody is a more definite harm. Wait a minute, hold on, guys. There's, there's a real easy de- demarcation line here. Did you break the laws that we subscribe to, okay, and then take that set of laws and then every other law that they subscribe to beyond your own laws is their laws? So in other words, if they have a law against murder and we have a law against murder, it's the same law. So we're fine with that. But let's say everything external to IDET's laws, peeing on the tree, some holy tree – that's an external law to IDET. Does IDET then ignore those laws, anything that does not that, – that isn't an IDET law? So for example, uh, you shoot one of the natives in the head for no reason. Well, that's murder and that's murder by IDET's laws. Would IDET say, well, no, you know what, dude? Honestly, in our court system, you, you know, you'd be prosecuted under our court system. Uh, we're going to let them prosecute you under their court system because that's a law – I mean you'd break that law at home and, and you'd have to go to court. Or do they do kind of what – sort of what the military – well, actually, I don't know. Paul, you would know better than, than me on this. Do they try them in their own courts back, back at you know, Hatsumi Station? They say – Does IDET have its own UCMJ? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, like for example, if an IDET guy, if an IDET member shoots, um, shoots a native in cold blood, do they? Does IDET let the, the the native tribe prosecute him, or does IDET take him back and treat him as as they would a murderer? You know, as if he had shot another um, another person back at IDET. Well, that depends I, on the statute of forces agreement, but in most cases, um, they're turned back over to the military for prosecution and then the military will make a determination if they're going to prosecute or return them to the host nation's legal system and remember this is the united nations doing this so so in this case the person is under the laws of his own nation at that point so even the french worthy die of old age before the u.n finishes stalking it to death (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) there are countries that will not extradite their criminals back to the United States because we have the death penalty in so many states. We're wandering off into legal, and I'm talking about right. I'm talking about right and wrong here, which may or may not coincide with what's legal. But Jay, whose ethics are you talking about? Because ethics, that's a slippery, that's a slippery subject, I mean, because not everybody agrees on, on ethics. I didn't say we were going to get to a conclusion. I just was trying to direct back towards the topic at hand. Also, Peter, your opinion might be different from mine, but if you're GMing Fringeworthy, your players might be your players' opinions might be different from yours. It's not something we can resolve in in one sit down discussion. Roll it's the just, dice and game the consequences. No, 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 no. I, I agree, I agree, I agree. But but what? Let's say, let's say you're playing a party and 
uh, you're under the jurisdiction, for whatever reason, you're under the jurisdiction of the Victorians, and you kill a savage. You haven't killed a person now, have you? You've killed an animal. I'm not entirely certain if uh, Victorian mm. England actually made those kind of legal distinctions or if it was a practical distinction. Uh, because the actual practical considerations were mostly like 99.99% if you kill the savage we'll just set, we'll just, and they get and they get really upset about it, we'll just ship you home. We're not going to actually hold you to account because we don't care about their lives. But they might actually have it on the books to where no you're you're really not supposed to do that and uh some people might say hey no that uh there are examples in american history and that's that's the one i'm going back to all the time because that's the one i'm familiar with where quakers in the late 1700s and early 1800s were anti-slavery and would help escape slaves get away even though that was against the law right and at the same time you'd have other people who would obey the runaway slaves laws a lot of that goes back to the person enforcing the laws that person's opinion about personhood of the accused and of the of the person who's dead who got killed right so he might elect to let it slide because he doesn't see the person who was killed as fully human. Well, he sees the person who's accused of the killing as a full human. And so he, even though the law says one thing, you might see other things because of a cultural uh, belief system held by uh, whoever is enforcing that law. So it's hard to say what the Victorian law actually said, but we know pretty clearly the effect. As we're de developing the Victorians for the game, they fought the Belgians to free the Congo. So their opinion that these people are not savages, they're people. The Victorians from Victorian Prime, they would turn around and they would deal with that person as though he was a, as a standard criminal. He killed somebody. And if you're in County Greystone you did that, the person you're going to be facing is Errol Greystone as a judge, jury, and probably executioner. I think you're, I think you're kind of... Uh over-romanticizing the Victorian point of view there, John. But but that's okay, because John, John really is spearheading the Victorians, so if, if he says that's how the Victorians would do it, then we kind of default to what John says, because I mean, it's kind of like Trav with the Coptics. And, and the Victorians are supposed to be romanticized, aren't they, John? I mean, that's pretty much... They, they are a romantic. But let's look, at the, let's look at the Golden Horde. Let's say you're one of the Golden Horde guys, you know, and, and you're, you're working with Idet, and, and some guy, you know, cheeses you off, and you, you cut his head off. Well, I mean, the con's probably like, well, why'd you cut his head off? Well, because he said this to me. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I get it. Or if it's if it's a zeal, you're into zeal world, and you end up killing a, lo a local. The first thing they ask is, was it was it a fair fight? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess what, what we're taking from this is, it, it's going to be tough on you as a game master because you've got you got so many levels. So you've got what government is your character starting from like like what government structure is he starting from then what government structure is he working with so if you've got a tazeel who's working with idet then you go to the third level what government are they dealing with are they dealing with some tribe so you know something goes down and and this tazeel you know cuts just take this for example uh some guy insults the tazeel you know says his mother was a a gecko a gecko, okay, right. So he cuts his head off. So in Tazeel society, that's cool. You know, you tell somebody, you, you insult somebody's mother, you know, you deserve to have your, if you lose the fight, it's a fair fight. I mean, he, he, he didn't surprise him. He pulled his sword out and challenged him and cut his head off. In Tazeel society, that's cool. He did everything by the rules. 
So, uh, Peter, what you're saying there is basically there is no there is no fundamental right and wrong. Right and wrong is a cultural artifact, and each culture has different ones. It, it always is. That that's always the case. I mean, as as far as I'm concerned, right right and wrong is is a very slippery concept. But 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 what I'm saying is is how's the game master handle that? Like, okay, so. That the zeal is, is he's working with Idet and he's on this other world and he cuts this guy's head off and then now Idet has to deal with this because they're the ones that sent this guy here. So so Idet's in the middle because they have to deal with this tribe that they're dealing with and they have to de- deal with their Tazeel counterparts that they're also dealing with. So what do they do? Do they sneak this guy out? Do they? You know, it, it's tough. But you as a game master. Uh, you have to, you have to, you have to be aware of this. It comes down to role playing. What would Ident do in character? Not necessarily because it's right and wrong, but what is in their character to do, right? But, but what I'm pointing out here, what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that before this happens, you as a game master, if you're running a, 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 a an event or you're running an adventure that is that complex. Please make sure that you have taken the time to think about these things because when they happen, you're going to have to have had some thought already put into it to deal with it. My experience is that um, when things get down to the level that we're talking about here, uh, players often are not clearly seeing. If I play IDET in a specific way because I think that's in character for IDET, Mm-hmm. Sometimes the players will see me doing a thing and think that I am validating that reaction without seeing that I am playing that organization in character to what that organization would think or do. You see, you see what I'm saying there? So if I, I, th- if I think IDET would, t- would try to sneak that guy out because they don't want to antagonize the Demixie and they think it's just a mess and want it all to go away, right? That's not what Jay thinks. That's what Jay thinks the, the institutional culture of IDET would do. But right. the way to head that off is, to, is your own wiki. You, you, the materials you provide the players in advance. The the question, the the other issue is, uh, I tend to try to run simpler plots with more direct um, goals and more direct conflicts, because that's easier for everybody to grasp, and in the end, that's kind of more fun for the players because uh, it's more about running and jumping and less about winning a philosophical argument. And it's very rare that I've had anybody have a lot of fun with a philosophical argument at a role-playing game, and I'm just about the only one I know who thought that that was cool. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because that generally tends, and I don't mean this to be insulting in any way, but that generally tends to rely on the maturity of your group. And when I say maturity, I'm not even talking about an age. I'm talking about how long you've been playing the game, but not even a time limit, but how long you've been playing the game and how you view the game. There's also issues of the of the player's own worldview and what he's bringing to the table as a person. Yeah. A GM has to manage all that stuff. But that player has to understand that there are many factors going into play, and then it doesn't matter how he's playing his character or what he thinks, that there are other, you know, there are other big metagame physics going on here and permutations. Again, like you said, it, it depends on how sophisticated a play you want to make. If you just want to go to places and kill people, you probably don't want to deal with this kind of stuff. <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm serious. And, and, and it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I, dude, I'm really... You know, when yeah. we played Savage Worlds, it was it was it it was big and large, 
Uh, we didn't address political issues or anything. We went places. We did adventures. We killed people. The bad guys were very clearly wearing black hats. They they did not hide. They did not hide their light under a bushel. There. Uh, you make you a player who basically normally during the day he's you know he's Mister Boring, but when he, it's time for him the game, he basically takes Mister Boring off and he's Mister Wildchild. I have met players like that. They're just in the game for excitement and to blow steam, and they don't care about any of the deeper issues involved. But to me, um, I, I like to honor the characters and honor the story. And, you know, I like to have NPCs react like they're real people. And sometimes I have antagonized players by having NPCs say, hey, you know, you, you screwed that guy over. You need to suffer some consequences about it. And uh, they, they, I've had the players take that personally as though I were uh, attacking their characters or they themselves. So, you know, you really have to kind of judge your audience and pitch your, uh, pitch your presentation to your audience and get the best players you can. Yeah, I, I think at this point we can say that if you're going to run a game, and this isn't just a game, running a colony, you know, starting a colony, player characters doing it, it would be a campaign arc if not a campaign. I think generally you're going to have to have a pretty high level of maturity in this endeavor because you have to deal with the fact that you're going to be dealing with a lot of things. You're going to have to be dealing with laws and rights and having to adjudicate on those things if you're dealing with an indigenous population in this colony. You're going to have to deal with logistics with, okay, how long is it going to be before the next mail run or the next supply run in order for us to keep this colony going until we're self-sufficient? Players and GM are going to have to have that certain level of maturity across the board, or otherwise the game is going to falter one way or another. The, a lot of it depends on what what the PCs are, what the players are looking for as part of a story. If they're looking for action adventure and go out and and have a big problem and solve it in a in an exciting way, then a lot of that thought process about how the colony is working, the logistics of it, is going to have to be in the background. Yeah, it's going to be something that the GM has to do for himself, so that when the mail, so that when the uh, the mail and supply truck shows up, it makes internal sense to him. But he may not actually be sharing all that information with the players. Other players may enjoy world building and may want to uh, participate in in the metaphorical setting up of the colony and setting up the rules and setting how it works. You know, again, it's a matter of knowing your audience and knowing what your players like and what they like to play with. And not all of them are going to like the same things. Yeah, I think at this point, most players are going to want the colony as a backdrop. That the GM is going to be, like Jay said, GM is going to be the one that has to worry about, okay, when's the supply truck coming in? When is the mail truck coming in? You know, how are we going to deal with the oncoming winter? The players are going to be given small tasks within the colony, and that will comprise their adventures. Okay, on the colony world this week, we have to explore this canyon we found. On the colony world this week, we have the local tribe coming in, and they're not happy that, you know, one of the NPC colonists did something. Those are the adventures that the the players are going to have to deal with, and the colony is going to be the setting. If yeah. you have a bunch of world builder players, yeah, then they're the ones getting into the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty of running the colony, and that's fine too if that's the campaign that they want to run. But forcing like that something on the go out, you know, the the dungeon crawl type, no, you're you're going to honk off a lot of players. You're going to you're going to lose them. They're going to wind up checking their phone a lot and going to sleep. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
Got, got, got to keep them busy. Oh, yeah, you got to cater to your audience. Yeah, your colony is just scenery and the jump-off point for plot points. Yeah. 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 But address Jay's situation. I can see a scenario right there. One of the columnists has done something bad, and he's disappeared, and the locals want you to do something about it. And they want you to do something about it, because he was one of your friends, which requires some guilt by association. Now your mission is to find where the heck he disappeared to. Yeah, and bring him back. <laughs> or it's the doctor accidentally killed somebody attempting to save them. That it becomes a plot point on its own. Well, thanks for joining us for this first part in our discussion of colonies on the fringe paths and all the strange and really hard questions that they bring up. We've talked about what a colony could be used for and how it interacts with its neighboring cultures and whether or not we have a chance of, of out uh, competing against the Demixi and the possibility of intelligent elephant strike forces. The wonderful thing about Fringeworthy is that there are no limits and there are infinite possibilities. We hope that you're playing this game and exploring those possibilities with your players and giving them hard questions to answer because that's what this game is a lot about. So we're hoping that you're enjoying this and that you're going to be back next time when we discuss more about these colonies. But until then... This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.